I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hi everyone, Kristen Sonanto Walker here, and we are doing a show with our many-time guest, uh, the wonderful Dr. Mark Feldman, and today we're going to be talking about harming pets for attention, and we'll get into uh, why, for those of you new listeners that haven't heard Dr. Feldman on our show before. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, glad to do it. So tell our listeners, before we introduce our next guest, just a little bit about your specialty and about your background for those of them that haven't heard your earlier shows. Sure. I'm a psychiatrist practicing in Birmingham, Alabama. I've been in practice for 35 years, and uh, for about 28 of those years, I've focused on medical deception, which basically means people who fake, exaggerate, or actually induce illness because they're looking uh, for attention and sympathy, care, concern. We call that factitious disorder, but most people know it as Munchausen syndrome. And I've recently released my fifth book, my fourth on this subject. It's called Dying to be Ill, True Stories of Medical Deception. And people can easily find it in Amazon and the other online booksellers. Right. And it was, a, I read it cover to cover. So um, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And we also have a guest with us, Styles Bennett, who is retired but worked in the past as a dog breeder. Styles, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. We are too. So in terms of this topic, I'm going to um, defer to you first, um, Mark, why, um, you know, you came to me with this idea to do this show. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it'll bring a lot of awareness. What was the impetus for you wanting to do a show about this particular subject? Well, I've studied what's called Munchausen by proxy abuse. It's sometimes called medical child abuse for many years. And that's where a caregiver, almost always the mother, uh, makes a child sick. It's almost always her own child in order to get concern for herself as the apparently indefatigable caregiver of 
someone whose illness is defying diagnosis, but in reality, she's the cause of the illness. Perhaps she's suffocated the child briefly enough for the child to keep losing consciousness, or she may have put a drop of blood in a urine specimen that the child apparently gave to make it look like lab results are abnormal, or she may inject the child with bacteria to cause a raging infection and make the child really sick. So that's been an interest of mine for a long time. And when I was putting together the new book, I started to think about uh, the fact that there was a growing literature, still small but growing, dealing with people who do the very same thing as in Munchausen by proxy, but use their own pets. They may not have children, or they may do it, make, make their pets sick, just as they make their own children sick. Uh, and it was a gripping sort of thing to learn about and recognize, and I decided to include a whole chapter on the subject in Dying to Be Ill. So, Styles, when you were approached about, you know, talking about this, what were your initial, you know, thoughts about coming on and doing this on the air? Um, it's very traumatic, um, having been the breeder of animals that have been through this this horrible nightmare. And I think that people just don't realize how deceptive this is and how pervasive it is in the entire workings of the of a family in my particular case there were children involved all under four under the age of seven and this family had had four dogs four puppies die in a two-year period mm -hmm. and the little child, the little girl, was the one who was most pet friendly. And what this was doing to her as a uh, a sideline, so to speak, is just as horrible as what was being done to the to the little puppies. I remember in in my own experience uh, when we we actually lived near some people that were breeding dogs, and I I would hear some of these stories from them about families that they would send dogs out to, and they've had done you know their version of due diligence, um, and after you know the third pet had some inexplicable death you know, they would obviously say, okay, there's something going on here, but there wasn't a way for them to, you know, prosecute or, or they, and they tried, you know, telling the police, this keeps happening. Something's going on in this family. We don't know what it is, but, and the response from authorities was, well, you know, stop, stop letting them purchase them from you. And, and they left it there. Nothing was investigated. So Mark, where, where have you sat with, you know, with that kind of a response? Well, it's really disappointing. And yet that's kind of standard even now. I wrote my first case report for a medical journal of what we called canine variant of Munchausen by proxy back in those days, back in uh, 1997. And it was the first time anyone in the medical community had written an article in which, uh, in this case, a Doberman 
was being starved by its owner who would then bring the dog to the vet and say the dog has stomach issues we don't know what's going on perhaps it's something genetic just as styles said told elaborate falsehoods about the dog and about the dog's health um, it was only when the owner had to go on vacation and left the Doberman with the breeder that it became evident that the dog was eating ravenously and regaining all the weight that had been lost. And when the owner returned from vacation, the breeder refused to return the dog. And at that point, the owner burst into tears and acknowledged that she had a sort of infatuation with the veterinarian and loved going to the office and it was a social occasion as much as anything else and mm -hmm. uh, uh, she agreed not to seek the return of the dog but there had been previous dogs in the family who had died uh, and clearly this was a pattern of behavior not a one-time occurrence but I, I hear uh, a fair amount through email through my website from veterinarians who are asking me what to do in such cases where they have a strong suspicion. And I used to say, why don't you talk to your professional organizations? They're bound to have a policy or a protocol for handling Munchausen by proxy when it arises in an animal. And now I've learned they don't. Right. These organizations yeah. simply ignore the problem um, or simply feel so ill-equipped to deal with it that they sweep it under the rug. Uh, so even now, only very few states require the reporting of abuse to an animal. Uh, the way they, we, we have so many mandated reporters for human child abuse, but it's been overlooked when it comes to animal abuse, even though these cases commonly result in fatality. Yeah, that's so interesting to me, too. I, I, I'm thinking of stories I've heard as well. I'll get into those in a minute. But Styles, for you, how did you, you know, did you have places that you could go to report things? Um, you know, what, what did you do as a former breeder? Well, I was fortunate um, to have one of the other breeders of, a, of one of the deceased puppies in that home um, share with me um, that she had been threatened, her life had been threatened uh, if she sought legal recourse to get her money back. And uh, she was told she would be killed if she came up to the house and tried to talk them into giving her money back for the puppy that um, they had paid for and they demanded money. I, I'm not quite sure how, how the check issue got in there, but it was it was a threat. So she went to the police and basically got nowhere. And she was she was insistent. She was a pain, from what I understand, about it. And then she kind of said, you know, they don't care. And I assured her that 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 wasn't satisfactory to me. Um, and I was very, very fortunate that at the same time that I found Dr. Feldman online, I found the animal control officer, Suzanne Costain, who was just absolutely wonderful and worked with 
with Dr. Feldman. Uh, they corresponded back and forth. And when she had questions as to how to present it to the veterinarian she was trying to work with, because all the records were immediately sealed. They were physically removed from the various offices that the people had used. Interesting. And sealed in terms of in favor of protecting the abuser or... Uh, protecting the abuser and wow. the doctor who called me. This is this this is how I came to find out about all this. I received a call one rainy afternoon, and it said, "Was was I the breeder of and named two dogs, Corey and Cassidy? Did I?" And I said, "Well, I, I'm yes, I'm the breeder of Corey. Um, I don't know anything about a Cassidy." And they told me that Corey was dead. And I said, you you must be mistaken because it's Cleveland that's been sick. I've been getting vet bill after vet bill for one of the dogs I had placed with this family and not, no, bills, no bills for Corey. And I kept writing and saying, please, I need, the vet's report, not the bill. Right. And I never got the vet's report. The closest I came was this veterinarian who called me, this emergency veterinarian who called me, listened to me for 45 minutes and talked to me, asked me questions, uh, wanted to know what I had fed. I, I told her I would be on the phone to my veterinarian following the call from her and have my veterinarian send fax her all the records of my my litters by two litters that these two dogs came from and following that um the next day when i called to find out how the one living puppy was doing i was told she couldn't talk to me it has to be, and, that had to have been utterly devastating because you feel so powerless. Was, You're not was, even living near. Yeah, well, it's it's like you're trying to um, figure out how all this can be. And the only thing that kept coming to me while I was listening to this veterinarian was this is just like the lady that I used to work with who used to keep taking her child to the doctor. And there was mm -hmm. a name for that that I, that I heard, and it was admittedly gossip at the time, um, that, the, that this was Munchausen's by proxy. And that's, so I told this veterinarian, I just said, I know what it is. It's Munchausen's by proxy. Now, don't ask me where that thought came from. It just <laughs> popped into my head, as kids are wont to say. But then the more I read and after I talked to Dr. Feldman and uh, talked to some various other people, I mean, I've talked to medical ethicists in Oxford, England. I've, I've talked to people because as long as I have breath in my body, this isn't over. Right. Right. Absolutely. A survey was done in the United Kingdom among pediatricians to see how common this behavior was, how often they recognized it, and they amassed hundreds of cases. So this isn't some 
obscure phenomenon that we're uh, highlighting. This is something that takes place very secretively. Vets don't talk to each other about it. And it's that secrecy that allows it to thrive and perpetuate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, it, they, and they yeah. feel... Excuse me. They they do feel the veterinarians do feel because I I talk to my my vet every time I go I I update her even if it's to say nothing has changed but it's it's been very difficult to get people to not immediately fear a malpractice suit it's it's yeah. just been terrible right. and probably Dr Feldman understands that being a doctor who also is subject to malpractice considerations. Um, I, I just know that um, I, I did finally reach the primary care veterinarian surreptitiously by pretending that I needed an appointment with him. And he told me, when I told him who I was and what I was calling about, he, was, he told me he could not talk to me, but he could listen. And that was an aha moment for me. Right. Because you know. he did listen. And I know he will not forget. Right. And he will be he will be a person who will speak up at a conference, who will talk to other veterinarians because he's seen it. Oh, absolutely. I mean any any vet has seen this happen. It's rarer. I well, I don't know. I'm not the expert here, but with the way that people view pets, uh, they're a pet, they're not a sentient being for many, many, many people. So just, you know, even living around uh, neighbors in certain places that just treated their animals deplorably. And we would call and say, please, you know, call animal control, call whoever, please come, you know, even even something as as simple as this my son calling me and saying, you know, that, uh, and he lives in, you know, hot, hot, a very hot, humid Southern state. People will put their dogs in those plastic crates and leave them on their balcony all day long. And mm -hmm. the um, complex that we live in will do nothing. Animal control will do nothing. Um, and their animal control and so on's response is, well, what can we do? So we write them a ticket and then they just, you know, they have the dog in for a while and, uh, and then next time we turn around, they're doing it again. So just that the level of handling it and taking it seriously and making it a crime is not there like it is with human beings. Am I right on that, Dr. Feldman? Yes, you are. And uh, the laws do need to change to be more protective of individuals who make reports and veterinarians who take action. But I, I'm thinking of one vet from the Midwest who wrote me a very long email going into all the details of his suspicion of Munchausen by proxy involving a dog and uh, also all the pathological lying that the owner did uh, about things unrelated to health or illness. She just wanted to seem to be special. So she claimed to be an international diplomat. She claimed to have had exposure to Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. She claimed to be descended from royal lineage. I mean, it just went on and on. He said, this is all absurd. But his conclusion was, if I say anything to her, she's a very visible 
person in the community, she will destroy my practice and my right. reputation. And that was it for him. I wrote to him and wrote back and talked to him about other options that made more sense. And I never heard back from him. I included his account in Dying to be Ill, uh, changing his location and a couple of facts. But basically, it's a sobering tale of having immense evidence and still not being ready to take the appropriate action. What, you know, you, Styles have seen or heard that is actually happening and being done to these animals? Well, I, got, I didn't realize anything until I sold the people the second puppy. And then I saw the first puppy come into the room. He had only gained a pound and a half in three months. Now, a puppy that is uh, 12 weeks old and now is three and a half months older, so say six and a half months old, should have gained considerable. Right. And uh, this woman actually got went and got the scale, and I said, well, well let's just see um, how much he weighs because he's he's really too thin and i i add that just prior to this the contract was signed and the akc papers were signed right so when this puppy appeared um i was just i was i truly i was shocked and I didn't see myself taking, picking up two puppies, one of which was her legal property and the other puppy, which I was about to leave with her and leaving the house. And to this day, I regret that. Even if I had been beaten up or something, I wish I had done that. Uh, I suspected when the puppy began developing seizures about a month later, and the bills for the thousands of dollars began being uh, copied and sent to me, I couldn't figure out why this puppy was having seizures, except of something I read. And I'm not sure whether it was in Dr. Dr. Fellman's uh, accountings or someone else's about how lack of oxygen from smothering mm can produce this with very little evidence left. I mean, unless you actually are there to, to find feathers or fiber fill or whatever the ingredient is, you don't, you don't know. There isn't any outward sign, so to speak. That's right. The, the reports that came later on when the other puppy died was a very high sodium content. And we know from several cases, pub, well-publicized cases with women who have done this to their children, um, either injecting or um, uh, tube feeding them high concentrates of salt, which is easy to obtain and, and doesn't leave a trail that you've gotten some kind of prescription, uh, extra doses or something. This is just plain old salt, but plain old salt and concentration can kill. Right. 
I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. So the mindset behind this, um, Dr. Feldman, just for our listeners that, you know, haven't heard your earlier shows, can you explain a little bit about, you know, the, the diagnosing process that you have to go through and think about when you're looking at cases like this? Well, there are warning signs um, that I list in the book. They're cold not only from my own work, but from work that's been done in the United Kingdom. And, and it seems to be the case that there are very few U.S. experts who have taken this on as an issue they want to better understand. But it seems to be more uh, developed in England and the United Kingdom as a whole. But um, as I mentioned with the vet from the Midwest who wrote to me, but then didn't write back again. Um, Mm -hmm. If people are telling you stories that strain credulity, that can be a sign that they're warping the veterinarian-patient relationship uh, for their own personal needs that they have for some perverse reason. Um, Also, if the vet notes a discrepancy between what he or she sees and what the owner is reporting, they shouldn't just dismiss that, but instead should explore it more and start to wonder about whether the pet is being harmed for attention. Uh, We have to look at things like fractures, broken bones, or say abdominal bruising, injuries to the pet that could have been inflicted directly by the owner. when there are multiple unexplained episodes of illness or injury, we get concerned. Uh, if it, you know, maybe there is a time or two that the diagnosis is very tricky, but when it happens over and over and things don't make sense, we need to be aware and vets need to be aware. And then uh, the best test of all is the separation test, as in that 1997 case where the woman went on vacation and left the pet with a breeder who took good care of the animal. If you can arrange for some sort of separation, at least for a few days, from the owner who seems to be culpable, you often see a dramatic change in the animal's health towards improvement. And we do that with human beings. We do that with children. We try to arrange for a separation. And it makes just as much sense when we have uh, an animal who's being victimized. 
Absolutely. I'd, I'd actually heard about a case. Um, I don't know if it made the news or not. It was in a small town that I had been living with at the time. And I heard about it through the therapy dog circuit that, you know, that I was in about an officer who did end up being relieved of duty, but there weren't any criminal charges filed who kept having one police dog after another die inexplicably or not even inexplicably sometimes left in a car and oh something happened with the car where the air conditioner stopped working and they were in eating because those cars are built to have an air conditioner that stays on and these kinds of quote-unquote accidents kept happening over and over again and as they dug deeper into the case they saw that he had a long history of aggression towards animals, um, but it had turned into using it for attention from the community. Oh, you poor, wonderful police officer that just has these tragedies happen. And it was like he went from, you know, being abusive to animals and having that be sort of the diagnosis uh, to, okay, now we all feel sorry for you because look at these, he just was able to flip it into this wonderful outpouring of support. They were doing charity events for him to raise for a new police dog until someone finally said, okay, this, I witnessed him tampering with his car, which made the, I think, you know what it was? It was the car manufacturer because the department got involved and was trying to sue the manufacturer for sending them these Mm. faulty cars and that's how it became a bigger deal but there was he was let go from his job still allowed to have pets at that time in his home no investigation done there and lost his job but there were no criminal charges made against it and the entire community it was a hubbub for a while and then they all just didn't want to talk about it anymore and i thought oh my this is are you kidding (laughs) yeah the, that that's um, that's a really poignant case, and it's mm-hmm. it that quest for attention and sympathy and concern seems to be at the root of so many of these cases. Um, it's interesting we haven't talked about the fact that sometimes people who may not even have pets like to go online to pet lovers support groups and profess that they have a sickly dog, cat, or horse, or rabbit even, and appropriate all the time and attention of the other members who offer ideas and uh, prayers. And uh, they're doing it for no reason other than to get attention and sympathy. And when it happens with human beings who are being victimized or who are uh, allegedly sick when they may not even exist. We call it Munchausen by internet. And that may be uh, occurring in some of these cases as well. And we focus on dogs, but as I just suggested, cats have been uh, victimized. Uh, and there's a horses. well-known... I'm sorry? Horses also. Yes, horses, absolutely. There's a case in the book of a horse named Topaz, whose owner kept uh, infecting the horse's eyes with burrs, putting pieces of, of wood in the, in the I was about to say child's, because that's what my dog is like for me, but <laughs> in the horse's uh, eyes. And uh, 
ultimately it became apparent that this just couldn't be happening spontaneously time after time. The horse wouldn't be seeking out burrs and uh, rubbing them with his eyes. But it went to court, but the judge said nobody saw it happen, and therefore uh, we'll charge court costs to the woman owner, but we're still going to allow her to keep the horse. And it's just, uh, it was appalling. It's just a disgusting outcome um, where in part the judge was perhaps unwittingly complicit with the abuse of the horse. Absolutely. Uh, and and the, the, it was in England, the Royal uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals uh, brought in experts to testify, but it still didn't change the overall outcome, which was of a lack of safety for the horse on an ongoing basis. So for this question, I have, I have two um, additional questions for you both. Um, this one, Styles, I want to start with you. Um, what do you think is, you know, going to help make a change? To me, it's talking about this, having these uncomfortable conversations, um, making people aware, because the more you get people aware, the more they're galvanized to look out for this and, you know, push our lawmakers to make policy and follow policy or create a policy that will protect. But other than that, what else do you see as, um, you know, as things that, that we can all do to prevent this or to at least affect change? Well, I think the biggest thing that that I can see would be, and this came to me from someone when I called Tufts because they did the necropsy on one of these animals. Um, when I called to talk to a person who might have been involved in that, um, I did speak to a veterinarian and never had heard of such a thing. Never had heard about it in humans and never had heard about it in pets. And she was so horrified that she could have this big gap in her education that I I just simply referred her to, to Dr. Feldman and said, you know, verify what I'm saying. Verify that this has happened with other people, not just me. But you have the necropsy results of a total, there's a total of six dogs over a four year period, same breed. Um, and you have the power to make it happen for your group. Even if it's just at the coffee break table, even if it's just as you jog around the block for your lunchtime walk, uh, whenever you can, you can spread this further, even even if it's filled with doubt. You can help because the three other breeders that have helped me, none of them wanted to talk about it to anybody. It made them sick. Right. Well, it made me sick too. Very sick. I still am having very violent nightmares from time to time. Um, I still wake up every morning and and just picture 
my little Cleveland in that house and and knowing that that he may be having a good day today or he may not. Right. Um so I, I do think that getting the veterinarians educated is a huge first step. As far as people go, my my friends that have dogs and the dog show world and now that uh, my my narrative has been published in Dr. Feldman's book, that's a reference that I can make. Right. You know, here, and, and not just what I had to say, read the other narratives about animals that are in that book. And it isn't, it isn't that much to read. Right, exactly. And they just... I think that's how we have to go about it. It makes for horrible dinner conversation. Yes. It certainly isn't something that you want to talk about the first time you go to someone's place for a cocktail party. You know, you'll never go back. Right. But right. I, I do think that these things have anything that involves um, caring for living things. We have to do a better job. We have to, some of this is because they don't yet know the specific part of the brain that might be involved and changed to make a person have this disorder. Um, I personally feel that it is a conscious criminal act. I have a very difficult time thinking that someone that their mother loved in the cradle is going to go on and do this just as I do with anybody who does mass shootings or anything like that. But, but I, I think that there is, this is a conscious decision. It's planned. It's, it's premeditated. It's not. And if you said to anybody, you know, how do you feel about premeditated murder of animals? It would be a whole a whole different way to to talk about it, and oftentimes right. if i if I re- encounter people that that speak that that way, you know that say oh it's it's just a pet, well, how do you feel about premeditated murder of animals? You get a room full of silence, yeah, it's like when I used to talk about incest and sexual abuse in the in the early eighties. <laughs> yes. I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, I had a lot of people shake fingers at me screaming, and I was just triggering their own uh, um, their own wounds that they hadn't dealt with yet. So I'm used to being someone that says it, and even though it's not popular and it may lose me a client, a job, whatever, I don't care because. But it 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 does, you know, that 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 kind of reaction by doing that can certainly cause PTSD in yourself, in you, Styles. Yes. Your own Styles, trauma. Styles does suffer from PTSD yeah. because Styles has a background that came before this. Right. And this just sort of like uh, woke up the sleeping dragon big time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, if I can just jump in, sure. one thing we haven't talked about yet, but is disturbing in its own way, is people who sicken their animals or lie about illness in their animals to get medications which they themselves then use. 
yeah. It's called mm-hmm. malingering by animal proxy. Right, right, right. And it's been known about for about 15 years, but very rarely written about. But people will sicken an animal or make up elaborate stories about how anxious the dog is and he's biting and he's agitated. Uh, and they'll get prescriptions for benzodiazepine drugs like Valium or Clonopin, which Xanax. they then, yeah. yes, Xanax, absolutely. And they will then use it themselves. So when the vet tries to follow up and say, and this just happened in a case I testified in one week ago today, uh, the vet tried to follow up and say, how did the Xanax work? Is the animal more comfortable? The uh, perpetrator, and I call her that deliberately, said, uh, you know, I don't even remember if I gave him the medicine. Right. Well, that's just not credible. That makes no sense. But it, it revealed to me the fact that she was using it herself. And the same thing is true for anabolic steroids that the animal may be prescribed or opioid medications. The, the animal might have a legitimate injury. Uh, a broken bone. And so opioids are prescribed, and yet the owner takes them for his or her own use. And you know, with um, human medical records, I, I know from being in the technology side of the field and looking at electronic health record software, yeah, there are things being done now, finally, where you can trace how many prescriptions have been given yeah. and so on. And there is v- veterinarian electronic health record software <laughs> does not, does, is not, you know, at that place by any means and it should be it should be if there if this owner is someone that's picking up that kind of medication it absolutely should be a law that it is checked against their own you know medical health record to see if they're they have an issue with um, substance use disorder i agree uh because if they're getting medications illicitly from a veterinarian, you know that they're doctor shopping as well and hospital shopping and emergency room shopping, trying to get more and more and more from multiple sources. And those latter sources would be on the prescription databases as part of electronic health record keeping. But the veterinarians uh, don't seem to enter their records into those databases. And so it's lost information that could make a decided difference. Let me ask you this. So when we're talking about, there's so many shades of gray here. Um, You know, there are people that just aren't good animal owners. Uh, They're neglectful. They don't see, you know, they leave an animal chained up outside uh, with barely enough water. You know, there's neglect to the point of being abuse. And then there's the um, intentional infliction of harm in order to get attention. So neglectful owners are not running to the vet and saying, oh, my poor horse. So I'd like to talk about, you know, that there is a difference here between those two things. Can you expand on that, Dr. Feldman? Well, they're different, but they're alike in a lot of ways, too. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't care for an animal, for instance, whether it's through active abuse or through neglect, you probably aren't doing a good job with your own children. Yeah. And that we mentioned this 
uh, a bit up front, but um, one is a risk factor for the other. That is, Munchausen by proxy involving children is a risk factor for Munchausen by proxy involving animals and vice mm -hmm. versa. And somebody who is neglectful or starts out as neglectful may become more overtly abusive as well. But there are others who are just neglectful people and don't provide even the most rudimentary basic needs of the animal, uh, whether it's food, water, or veterinary checkups. Exactly. And then when we tip that into this is someone who's actively um, hurting an animal in order to get attention from their community, from their, uh, have you had people, and I'm sure you have, that you've worked with who actually would get to a point where they would admit those things? Yeah, as in the first case I ever encountered that I keep referring to the 1997 case, which dates me terribly, <laughs> but um, there, there was a confession, but generally there isn't. And that's yeah. true for Munchausen by proxy involving children as well as animals. The denial is incredible. Uh, it can be impossible to break through it. And if somebody won't admit to their behavior, there's no chance of doing anything therapeutic to change it. Right. I mean, even if they, even if you could somehow coerce them into getting treatment to understand why they're misusing their underlying needs in this way, uh, you're going to be disagreeing with the patient about why they're in the therapy office to begin with. Right. They're going to deny what they've done. You're saying, yes, you did do it. And there's no basis for formation of a therapeutic alliance. And without an alliance, therapy is pretty well doomed. So uh, we haven't really talked about treatment, but I, I feel like it needs to be criminally pursued. And any, any uh, thoughts about trying to remedy the situation or uh, provide therapeutic benefit uh, have to be they can be offered, but secondary, it's as a secondary intervention after there's been forceful uh, criminal or animal protective uh, actions taken. Do you think that the negative, I mean, the people that are doing this, uh, that are doing it to get positive attention uh, to them, uh, People are paying attention to them. They're extremely lonely. Uh, you know, whatever the reasons are that this yeah. is happening and much more nefarious even than just those things. But when the criminal part of it, do you think that that piece is key in terms of, okay, what they want is this kind of attention, which is look at me. I have this poor animal. I'm such a saint that I'm taking such great care of this sick animal in some cases that that's, you know, the, what they, what they're going for. And then you bring in a criminal piece and they're under investigation that maybe that is enough to start someone down a process of, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be, the cat's going to be, you know, let out of the bag and pun intended um, that uh, now I'm getting a lot of negative or potential negative attention about this. So it's yeah. just completely, you know, combating what they were doing it for in the first place. Yeah, it, it seems to be what we usually pursue in Munchausen 
by proxy involving human victims, child victims, they have to understand that there are serious consequences right. or there can be serious consequences though the courts don't always take it seriously as we've talked about. And that can attenuate the behavior. I mentioned a case I testified in a week ago. Not only was uh, an animal euthanized unnecessarily, but the child was being subjected to medical child abuse. And uh, there may actually be some hope in that case because everybody now is aware of what happened. Everyone around the woman is aware of what she did both to the animal and to her own daughter. And she's under continuous scrutiny. If something like that happens again, there's going to be legal action, the likes of which she probably has never imagined. It's going to be severe. And I think that does attenuate the risk quite a bit. What I found and what I continue to find so um, interesting and such a high level of humanity from you, Dr. Feldman, is the compassion that you have for people with these diagnoses while also being adamant about bringing this to light and showing, you know, the horrors of what it can be. How do you walk that line in your, in your life of being able to remain so compassionate as you were on the last show we were just, you know, that we just did, as well as being such a fighter out there in uh, such an advocate? Well, I do develop moral outrage. Uh, <laughs> there's no denying that, but uh, this has also been a scientific area of research for me for decades, and I've encountered many, many hundreds of cases. And I think there's a process, whether it's good or bad, of desensitization that occurs. Right. Um, people say you must find it just exhausting and horrifying to deal with these cases every day, and I do deal with them every day. But... Um, I, I find that uh, I'm able to vigorously pursue the cases, but not take it so personally that my work is undermined. And how I achieve that balance, I don't know. It works. I haven't questioned it a lot, and I'm afraid if I question it too much, it'll go away. So, <laughs> I, um, But it's an interesting question I have to ask myself from time to time. Uh, during a deposition I gave a week ago, and I keep referring to this case, uh, we were of the of the dog, and I couldn't help but reveal my incredible anger. And I wouldn't refer to it as euthanasia; I called it murder because it was right. murder of the dog. And the opposing attorney said, "Boy, you sure have strong feelings about this," as if that's <laughs> inappropriate because it was right. merely a dog. But yes. it was so much more. It represented so much in terms of coming to understand this woman's behavior, both towards her daughter and towards the animal. Mm, absolutely. Styles, how about you? I, I know you talked about, you know, your own PTSD and things before this. What made you, do you think, have to, regardless of, you know, danger or some possible danger that it put yourself in to be public about this? Um, what what do you think it was within you that made you have to speak out about this? Well, I think when you um, deal with a great many people, 
uh, much as Dr. Feldman does in his practice, but as a dog breeder, you deal with all kinds of people and you have all kinds of ways of determining that this is a wonderful home for your puppy that you have bred. Right. Um, and to go to a home so perfect with the little children lined up sitting on the floor with their legs crossed, all of them understanding to let the puppy come to them and not to chase or yell, even though they were so excited, they were just clenching their little fists and shaking and, and, and so big eyed to see the puppy come. I knew I had found a perfect home. Yeah. And to have that kick in the stomach, just, uh, I, I couldn't let it. I couldn't let it go. It I, I can't it let. Upends, I yeah. can't let it go. I'm still. Yeah. I'm still in the process of of. Uh, I, I tell you, my my dog breeding friends, my dog showing friends, almost always, if I haven't seen him for a while, will say, "Any news?" Right. And I know I have this group of 45 people in my corner. That's so great. Oh, my gosh. And if Good they get you. a call for a puppy, sometimes they will call me right after that and say, I just got a call. Does this sound like her? <laughs> Thank God. And they have all... They've all been exposed to Dr. Feldman's book and, and the little narrative that I contributed. And I said, see, we, we have done something. And that well, was I my, think it was really styles. Style, I'm sorry. Uh, not being able to see you makes it harder to know when the other person's done. But uh, <laughs> um, if it weren't for Styles' narrative, I probably wouldn't have included a chapter in the book dedicated to the subject but it was so well written and well explained and it became personal to me as well that it really formed the base. It was the first thing I put down before I wrote the rest of the chapter. I mm -hmm. wanted people to really highlight that particular case report. Mm, I'm so glad the both of you do this. It's so, I feel so blessed every time I meet other people that are willing to get out there and, uh, you know, have people shake your head, their head at you, have people think that you're crazy, that you are the one with the problem, that you should uh -huh. just shut up and turn a blind eye. And yet you don't, and you open your mouth and you share information anyway. Um, those are my kind of peeps. So thank you. <laughs> and that's what this whole show is. All, uh, my podcast is all about and certainly what our network is all about. So I really um, just want to say thank you to both of you. Um, Dr. Feldman, I know you've heard it from me many times. And I just want to say, Styles, thank you. You have another person. So I think you said 45 people. You, you can now count me and our network is um, 46 including me and, and then a whole, you know, add another 75 people to that, that would be a hundred percent behind you and what you're doing. So just know that as well. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Dr. Feldman, please tell our listeners, you know, where they can find out more about you on your website. I know they can um, look you up on Amazon and buy your books, but I want to say this really quickly. 
forever. I wanted to talk about Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy. You know this story, Dr. Feldman already. And I was like, I can't find anyone anywhere. And when the three minutes, Melanie said, uh, well, there's this website, which go ahead and give it, Dr. Feldman. <laughs> yes, it's munchausen.com. Easy to remember, munchausen.com. It's M-U-N-C-H-A-U-S-E-N.com. And people can email me through the site. They can get exhaustive information about all the phenomena that are related to Munchausen syndrome and medical deception as a whole. And I'm delighted. I respond to every email I get. I've gotten 3,000 emails over the last 10 years and have replied to each one. And I learn from each one. So people should feel free to contact me. Absolutely. And it was hilarious to go, okay, you mean there's a website called Munchausen.com and I'm sitting here looking for two years. And yeah, right. <laughs> well, again, thank you both. And I'll look forward to continuing the conversation about, uh, about this very, very insipid disorder. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank yes, you. Stanley. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you again uh, to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.